Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Afghanistan is back in the news. Last thing that you might remember are those photos and videos of Afghans clinging to a U.S. military plane as the Americans pulled out and the world abandoned them. Today's news is no better. It is about what those Afghans were running from. Globe and Mail reports that Afghans who helped Canada are military's translators and interpreters. They are being detained and beaten and tortured by the Taliban, who are now fully in charge of Afghanistan. This is happening as these translators and interpreters wait for travel documents that Canada promised them. It's happening as they wait to escape and to come here to Canada. They're still waiting. It's been a similar story since we got involved. It's been over 20 years of this. And we keep trying to put it all behind us. But just because we're done with the past doesn't mean that it's done with us. My colleagues, Archie Mann and Jordan Cornish and Noor Azrieh, the team behind our podcast Commons, they have been engaged in a project that I will admit I do not envy them. The story of Canada's mission in Afghanistan is so shameful and violent that I would not want to be the one to dig through it all, to relive it and to retell it. But they're doing that work, and they are finding things out and saying things that have not been said before. And they're putting the lie to some of this country's most egregious myths about that war. For example, the myth that Operation Medusa was some kind of glorious military success for Canada. Something we should all be proud of. On today's show, we bring you their story about that battle. And we hear it right from the mouths of the people who were involved. This is just one story from their current season of Commons called War. Wait for it. Sean Teal thought things were getting better. The young Canadian soldier had already done one tour in Afghanistan as part of the international mission in Kabul. And on his second tour, he could see things improving in the city. The girls were going to university, and you're driving through downtown. And when we pull over and we get out of the vehicle, you know, we're not having anybody throw rocks at us. We're not having anything like that happen. People were genuinely like, hey, man, want to have a cigarette and just talk about nothing? Because that's what they really wanted. There were still dangers, of course. A handful of suicide bombings, undetonated mines were a constant worry, but Kabul itself was feeling more and more like a normal city. Things were about to change for Sean and the other Canadian soldiers. They were leaving Kabul to take up a new mission. They would be taking over responsibility for one of the southern provinces from the Americans, Kandahar. And they said to us, all right, guys, we're going to go on this like 13-hour road move from Kabul to Kandahar. When we went out with like the biggest convoy that I've ever been in in my life. 
It had to have been over 30-something vehicles. Journalist Adnan Khan was also there for the trip. You know, at first it was it was this beautiful road trip. You're going through really beautiful areas in Afghanistan. But as you get closer and closer to Kandahar, you start to feel the tension mounting. For Sean, rural Afghanistan seemed like an entirely different world from what he had gotten used to. There's villages that we went to where the people admitted they have not been into Kabul for over 10 years. And they're not even 100 kilometers away. They just don't leave. When they crossed the border into Kandahar, things truly changed. It felt like you were going actually into a different country because when you're driving by, they're not even looking at you the same. They're not waving. And any time the convoy would get stuck in traffic or slowed down, you would occasionally get people sort of shouting something and, and, you know, and you wouldn't quite be able to catch what it was. Because we got just outside of Kandahar. At one point we got caught in traffic and people literally started throwing rocks and yelling. One of the Canadian soldiers she broke down into tears. I mean, it was just so shocking. Like, I think the expectation was so different. And actually seeing the reality just start to hit home just at that moment, you know, like, this is for real. We're going to go into a war zone where people maybe don't like us and maybe we'll start shooting at us. Sean Teal would return to Kandahar on his third tour. And this one was nothing like his first two. It literally felt like we were going to a different war. Kandahar was a different war. It's where some of the fiercest battles in modern Canadian history would be fought and where more than 100 Canadian soldiers would lose their lives. But the decision to go into Kandahar had little to do with what was best for Afghans. It was about politics. And when the lives of Canadian soldiers were at risk in the middle of battle, even the orders they were given were driven by political concerns. And Afghans and Canadian soldiers alike would pay for that with their lives. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. In August 2006, Sean Teal was on his third tour in Afghanistan, this time in Kandahar. We got those, we called like the orders from hell. They were being tasked with meeting the Taliban in open battle outside of Kandahar City. Just a month earlier, a different Canadian battle group tried to do the same. They lost four men and had to retreat. You could see how some of them were physically shaken. and, And that's not something you're used to seeing with people. They tend to hide that. But it was very, very open. Like they were, they were genuinely trying to tell us like, look, guys, it's bad. It's bad out there. It was then that Sean began to realize just how different this was from his previous two tours. The first two in Kabul, they'd felt like peacekeeping to him. But there was going to be no peacekeeping in Kandahar. This was war. Well, they told us, you know, look left and look right, guys. Not everybody's going to be coming back. They were right. Not everybody did come back. Within days, Sean would be fighting for his life in Operation Medusa, the biggest land battle in NATO history. And what's truly disconcerting in retrospect is how Sean and other Canadian soldiers even ended up in Kandahar or fighting in that battle. Because the truth is, Canada embroiled itself further in the war in Afghanistan 
not through deep consideration, but almost by accident. The government never, to my knowledge, we never talked about it as, as a war, per se. That word wasn't used. That's Eugene Lang. He was chief of staff to two Canadian defense ministers, and he's the co-author of The Unexpected War. In 2001, Canada had joined the American-led war on terror and committed to send troops to Afghanistan. The next year, we sent over a battle group to Kandahar. And aside from the Tarnak Farms friendly fire incident that we told you about in the last episode, it was relatively uneventful. Canadian troops were back home before the end of the year. Outside of naval commitments, that was the extent of what Canada had signed up for in Afghanistan. But by 2006, Canada was at the forefront of the conflict, committing thousands of troops to one of the country's most dangerous provinces, just as the Taliban were surging. So how did a country so deeply attached to its identity as peacekeepers end up at the front lines of one of the world's deadliest conflicts, all without even calling it a war? The answer, according to Eugene Lang, has everything to do with our relationship with the United States. You could say that Canada's policy in Afghanistan was never really very much about Afghanistan. In early 2003, the world had largely forgotten about Afghanistan. Iraq was the news of the day. The Americans were trying to rally international support for an invasion, and Jean Chrétien's liberal government had to decide if they would join the so-called Coalition of the Willing. Canadian Defense Minister John McCallum went down to Washington, D.C. in January of that year to meet with U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Eugene Lang was in the room for the meeting, and they thought that it would be focusing on Iraq. And when we got there, it turned out that Secretary Rumsfeld really didn't want to talk that much about that. He wanted to talk about Afghanistan. Rumsfeld wanted Canada to take charge of the international mission in Kabul. He made basically a direct request that Canada take on the leadership of that mission. From the beginning, Iraq and Afghanistan were intertwined for Canada. By sending troops to Afghanistan, we were doing the Americans a favor, and we wouldn't need to send any to Iraq. It eventually came down to the decision that Canada wouldn't be involved in the invasion of Iraq, but would take on this mission in Kabul that the Americans had asked us to do. The United States still wanted Canada's political support for the invasion of Iraq, which they didn't get. But by taking the lead of the mission in Kabul, which was only initially supposed to last a year, Canada had taken its first step on a road to all-out war. The Kabul mission, like the 2002 deployment, was largely uneventful. And internationally, Afghanistan was being viewed as a success story. The Taliban appeared to have been defeated. Presidential and parliamentary elections were going to be held in 2004 and 2005 the focus started to shift more and more towards development. The Americans had come up with this concept of Provincial Reconstruction Team, PRT. Nobody really quite knew what they were. The idea was that different countries would basically adopt a province. They would send over military forces and civilians to assist with both bringing security, but also helping with governance, training police forces, creating infrastructure, and anything else the population needed. Canada had signed on to this plan, but they had to pick a province. By the time we had decided on a location, really there weren't a lot of options because other countries had made decisions about where they were going to be. 
And so that sort of led us back into Kandahar. While many Canadian officials were optimistic that things were moving in the right direction in Kandahar, it was still seen as one of the more dangerous provinces. So that led into this larger proposal of Canada's deploying another large contingent of army, infantry, and, and armor eventually. And ironically, the man who would make the call to lead us into Kandahar didn't even see Afghanistan as a foreign policy priority. When Paul Martin became prime minister in 2003, he saw the Afghan mission as part of his predecessor's agenda. Afghanistan wasn't Mr. Martin's top foreign policy priority, though he approved a huge operation in Afghanistan during his time as prime minister. Once again, it was our relationship with the United States that was pushing the agenda. At the time, Paul Martin was debating whether or not to join a ballistic missile defense program with the U.S. But George Bush was deeply unpopular in Canada after the invasion of Iraq, and the liberals were in a minority government. Ballistic missile defense was politically unpalatable. These major commitments in Afghanistan were seen as a way of nevertheless showing solidarity with the Americans in one of their major international priorities, which was trying to secure that country. So these issues did get intertwined in decision-making and discussions in the Canadian government. So I want to return to that question I asked at the top. How was it that we ended up fighting an all-out war in Kandahar by 2006? Well, it was largely because we wanted to keep the Americans happy after rejecting them on Iraq and missile defense. In short, it was political. In 2006, a confluence of events came together that would shape this next, deadlier phase of the war. The Canadian mission was part of a larger surge of international troops in southern Afghanistan. NATO was taking over command from the Americans, who were increasingly focused on the horrific aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. And the Taliban were on the rise. The biggest indication that Kandahar wouldn't be like Canada's previous missions in Afghanistan came on January 15, 2006. That day, Glenn Berry, a Canadian diplomat who was the political director for the Kandahar Provincial Reconstruction Team, was killed in a roadside bombing. And over the next few months, Canadian casualties began to mount. As the summer months approached, Taliban forces began to operate more and more openly in the rural areas outside of Kandahar City, especially in the Panjwai Valley. The perception in the press and the military at the time was that these Taliban fighters, they weren't locals. Instead, it was believed that they were a relatively small number of extremists who had been hiding out in Pakistan over the last few years and were now returning to fight. But Adnan Khan, who was reporting from Kandahar during that time, mostly for McLean's magazine, says that that wasn't really the case. We have to be careful in how we color what the Taliban cause, so to speak, is, right? I mean, for local people in Kandahar, the Taliban was just them. It was local people. And he says it wasn't necessarily ideology driving people to the Taliban. One Taliban fighter remarked on this. He said what really changed things for him was watching contractors and the way they threw money around like it was nothing. There was a lot of, I think, failures that just fed the idea that these foreign troops weren't here to help local people at all. And the Taliban were able to really leverage that and turn the narrative around 
and say, listen, they're just here to occupy, they're just here to destroy, they're here for war, we're here to try to help you. And that really helped them to recruit. The Taliban were gaining strength outside of Kandahar city, and attacks against Canadian forces were increasing. By August, the military had decided to take the fight into the open. When Omar Lavoie arrived in Kandahar in August 2006, he learned quickly that not everything was going well. Lavoie is now retired after having risen to the rank of Lieutenant General, the second highest position in the Canadian Army. But back in 2006, he was taking over command of a Canadian battle group in Kandahar. A few days before he assumed command, he was out doing reconnaissance with Colonel Ian Hope, the man he was replacing. And just as our patrol got into the compound, came under mortar fire from the Taliban. And the first round, an almost a direct hit on my vehicle. It, it impacted about three or four meters to the left. His gunner was wounded. So Lavoie took over and fired back with more mortar shells landing around them. Eventually, the smoke cleared and they were able to get away. But Lavoie had some questions. From what he had been told, the Taliban were largely an untrained, ill-disciplined group of insurgents. So how come they were able to fire off mortars with such accuracy, which for Canadian soldiers usually takes years of experience? And I asked Ian, I said, you know, how often does this happen? And his answer was almost daily. You could set your clock by it. You know, and excuse my language, I said, well, f that's, <laughs> you know, what have you done about it? And the answer really wasn't clear to me. He didn't plan to be fired on every day, so he started to make preparations to take control of the piece of territory where it was believed the mortars were being fired from. On August 19th, they attacked. The Canadians had been told that at most, there were a few hundred Taliban active in the whole region, so they didn't expect much resistance. But that's not what happened. After the Canadians took their objective, Three to four hundred Taliban counterattacked. The battle lasted for nine hours. And though the Canadians won, Lavoie could see that he wasn't getting accurate information. If a hardened position occupied by mechanized forces using labs can be attacked by 300 plus Taliban, then there's something wrong with the intelligence picture that we were receiving. The next day, he was told to begin planning an attack to rout the Taliban from the area entirely. This was the beginning of Operation Medusa, the biggest land battle in NATO history and the most significant Canadian engagement in the entire war. Operation Medusa is one of the most memorialized and most debated episodes of Canada's time in Afghanistan. Prime Minister Stephen Harper has mentioned it in the same breath as Vimy Ridge and Juno Beach. General David Fraser, who was the commander of NATO's forces in southern Afghanistan, even co-authored a book about it a few years ago with the unfortunate subtitle, The Furious Battle That Saved Afghanistan from the Taliban. And in recent years, it's become the source of some controversy after Minister Harjit Sajjan overstated his role in the events. But from the people we spoke to, who were on the ground, the view is decidedly different. Some of the soldiers feel 
that Canadian lives were needlessly sacrificed. And even the commander on the ground, Omer Lavoie, disagrees with choices his higher-ups made. The first thing you need to understand about Operation Medusa is it is unlike almost any other engagement in the war. Most of the war in Afghanistan was a counterinsurgency. The Taliban did what all guerrilla armies do. Ambushes, bombings, hit and runs. But the difference with the Taliban in, in that region was that they decided for various reasons that they were going to stay and fight and take on this large conventional force. And so it was decided, you know, Medusa needs to be not a counterinsurgency operation, but an offensive combat operation against a, an entrenched enemy. This would be a conventional battle, the kind that wouldn't be unfamiliar to a general in World War II, not the kind of fight you often see in Afghanistan. The plan was straightforward. The battle group would attack from the south and from the north to try to hem the Taliban in. And then aircraft and artillery would bombard the area for three days. After that, Omer Lavoie would make the decision of whether to continue the attack from the north, the south, or both at the same time. The Taliban had chosen to structure their defense around a white schoolhouse. For them, it was an iconic building, rumored to be where the Taliban had become a formal entity in the 1990s. In August, four Canadian soldiers were killed and another six were wounded trying to capture the site. Bruce Monker remembers the preparations. He was a soldier in Charles' company, which would be leading the charge from the south. There was a plane that flew over and they kicked like thousands and thousands of leaflets out in their language, explaining that if you were found in this area, you will be seen as an enemy combatant and you will be eliminated. So we definitely lost the element of surprise in that move. But at the same time, I think in trying to limit the amount of collateral damage, giving the locals or the innocent people living there the ability to uh, escape was something. On the morning of September 2nd, the assault began. NATO troops moved in from the north and the south to capture the high ground and to try to box in the Taliban. And everything went according to plan. Sean Teal, who you heard from at the top of the show, was also with Charles' company, who were coming up from the south. They secured their objective, and then, as planned, they began to shell the area, the first of three days of aerial and artillery bombardment. We're thinking three days. That, that's a pretty cushy amount of time for you to, to get a, a good observation. After those three days, they would cross the river and finish off any Taliban who were left. But the plans began to change. General David Frazier ordered Omar Lavoie to cross the river at night, two days ahead of schedule and continue the attack. I just flatly refused to do it. I was like, it would be crazy. We had conducted no reconnaissance. We had no idea what the IED situation was. We had to cross a river. Omar couldn't understand the order. Why not just bomb the Taliban for another two days like they had initially planned? Why would you change the plan? Well, from a, you know, a military reasoning, it'd be like, okay, the intelligence situation tells you something different or you have an opportunity to exploit an enemy situation, a weakness. None of that made sense to me because the Taliban weren't going anywhere. We had them hemmed in. Time was on our side. Today, he thinks the decision wasn't motivated by military concerns, but by politics. I think at the higher level, 
at NATO, at ISAF, there was a huge propensity to show immediate results. NATO had just taken over the mission from the United States, and there was a sense that the alliance had yet to prove that they could be just as tough as the Americans. After he refused to cross the river at night, Lavoie was told to have a conversation with General Fraser on a satellite phone. And was subsequently ordered to put the attack in the next morning at, uh, at first light, which I still wasn't happy about, and neither were my company commanders or, or anyone else. Sean Teal remembers noticing that something strange was up that night. I got off my shift and I see all the, all the leaders all up on top of the hill and they're, they're in a little powwow. And it's like, it's not even like five o'clock in the morning yet. And I'm going, okay. And then I, I'm sitting there on the back of the rep and I light up a cigarette and then Warren Officer Rick Nolan comes up to me and, and he, he, he kind of looked worried for the first time. And like, he comes up to me, he's like, hey man, I need you to get everybody up and just pack up as if we're not coming back, like, like we're moving out. They got ready to cross the river at first light. There was little in the way of a plan. And within two days, Charles' company would be a shell of itself. The first step was to get across the river. We went down early in the morning. We crossed the river with the vehicles, and then we disembarked. And we were walking in essentially an extended line to see the level of commitment that the Taliban had. Sean Teal was in a G-Wagon, a fairly weak vehicle. Alongside him was Warrant Officer Rick Nolan, an Afghan interpreter and the platoon medic. Rick comes up to me and he says to me, he's like, I know I don't have to worry about much. He's like, I'm in the safest vehicle. I have the platoon medic. And I had the tactical combat casualty course, which is enhanced first aid training, you know, to assist medics or do whatever I was doing. And then they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. They said the enemy was moving off of Objective Rugby from what they could observe. Objective Rugby was the code name for the white schoolhouse. Surrounding it were giant stalks of marijuana growing as high as 10 feet. They rolled up to within 40 or 50 meters of the white school and stopped. They sat there for a minute and a half as Rick Nolan was playing around with a camera. I saw a little green flash over top of the marijuana, which was like a pen flare. Essentially what happened was a green pen flare had shot it up in the air. We used red, so we knew it didn't come from us. So once that pen flare went up, rockets started getting fired in all directions. And as soon as that happened, just wham, just this huge orange flash. And I just got smashed back in my seat. Like, like somebody three times my size grabbed onto me and smashed me into a wall. There was like, there was no air. Everything went black. All I could smell was burning plastic, like burning hair and cordite and all the other stuff that, you know, from the munitions. And I kicked my door open, like the smoke starts pouring out. And I'm like, you know, you're having a, a bit of a holy crap moment because your eyes are burning, you can't breathe. And then I realized really quickly, like, you know, I'm, I had a concussion. I'm like, you know, for a second, you're like, you're wondering if it's real. We had walked far enough into the trap that we were now enveloped on three sides. Essentially, we'd walked into a giant U. The Taliban hadn't abandoned the white schoolhouse. Instead, they had lured the Canadian forces into a trap. Hundreds of Taliban fighters had surrounded Charles' company. They were in the field with us. They told us the enemy was moving off the objective, and they're 
clearly still on it and they were dug in. This is bad. Sean was still dazed from the rocket attack on his G-Wagon. I grabbed my rifle. I, I look back and I see two guys, not even like 40 meters in front of me. Like, and they were reloading with RPGs. He threw a grenade at them and then fired off some rounds, killing at least one of them. Sean tried to survey the damage. He could see that the medic was moving. He looks like he just got punched in the face, like legitimately, like he has like the stars in the eyes look. I grabbed him, I pushed him in behind the vehicle. The Afghan interpreter fell out of the vehicle, landing on his head. Both the medic and the interpreter were clearly injured. These two are unarmed. I'm the only one with a, with a weapon, and there's bullets coming in from three different directions. And at that point, we didn't know how many people we were against. We had no clue. He told them both to stay put. Sean could hear firing all around him, but couldn't see anything because of the giant marijuana stalks. He checked in on warrant officer Rick Nolan and saw that his helmet was off. He was injured badly. I realized I got to get Rick out and the fire's not stopping. And this is not like a bullet here, a bullet there. We're talking about every other second there's something hitting the vehicle. And when I looked inside, all of the communications equipment, all the map stuff, everything that we had out, was on fire and threw him. He pulled Nolan out of the vehicle. It didn't take him long to realize that Rick Nolan was dead. When I realized like this is it, I got I got a I got one dead person and two people who are who could be dead very soon that are unarmed. The interpreter was awake but seemed too terrified to respond. The medic was coming in and out of consciousness. Eventually, Sean snapped him out of it and put a rifle in his hand but they had nowhere to go. All they could do was defend themselves and pray that someone showed up to help. Suddenly, three other Canadian soldiers did arrive. Between them, they had to get the medic and the interpreter's safety. There's only one way to get back, and that's on foot. They did, like, two trips. And that's, that's dangerous enough on its own because you can't see what's shooting at you. It's like being on a lawnmower. You're literally running through, and there's plants being ripped apart from machine guns, and you're just hoping to God that you're running low enough to the ground and fast enough that you're not going to catch one on the way through. Sean and another soldier were left there with Rick's body, and they were determined to bring Rick back with them. We were going to pick him up and start running, and all of a sudden, a lav three pulls up from behind us. We dragged him up into the vehicle, and the guys just piled in on top of him. They were able to get back and join the rest of their platoon. Sean began to act as a medic, going past the line and looking for anyone who was injured. He came across the body of another soldier, Private William Cushley. He helped bring his body back as well. Eventually, Sean had to sprint back across the river while bullets whizzed past him. After they had retreated, the men of Charles' company surveyed the damage. Four of them had died. Nine were wounded. The next day brought more tragedy. Bruce Moncor had been in the middle of the kill zone outside of the white schoolhouse the day before. He'd seen two of his fellow soldiers killed in a rocket attack just meters from him. But he was going to be going back in the next morning. He was getting ready not long after dawn. I ate, I remember, beans and wieners. And uh, I'm on the side of the mountain talking to my fire team partner. And all of a sudden I'm tossed in the air, just thrown. I landed face first on some jagged rocks and lost consciousness, broke my nose. And I remember kind of like 
being like, what the hell happened? Bruce had just been fired upon by an American plane. Someone had lit an unauthorized fire, and the pilot had mistaken it for an enemy position. One soldier was killed. Another 30 were wounded. Five of them, like Bruce, were seriously injured. Bruce was airlifted back to base, where he had surgery. Eventually, he was taken to Germany for another surgery, where he had 5% of his brain removed. I lost the ability to read, write, walk, talk. Like, that was like, I was, you know, down and out pretty hard. It would take years for Bruce to relearn all of those basic functions. And for Charles' company, those two days were an unmitigated disaster. Many of the soldiers were pissed. Why were they forced to cross the river two days early? Why were they told that the Taliban had retreated when in fact hundreds of them were waiting to ambush them? Some guys were going, you know, the only reason why these guys are dead is because we didn't get three days of bombing. And I was very surprised that some of the people that were saying that were guys that were, that were in, you know, longer than me. I was definitely angry for years about the 72 hours being reduced to 24. I held a, a serious grudge against General Fraser for quite some time, and I was very angry. But at the end of the day, he made a decision. Do I think it was the right decision? No, but he was the one making that decision. And I think the dominoes that fell afterwards because of that decision definitely escalated things. So the battle going so poorly against us, the strafing, everything like that was begot from that initial response. Omar Lavoy, who was commanding the battle group on the ground, had disagreed strongly with the order to move up the fight. And now he was the one who had to deal with the fallout. From a, a leadership perspective, it was the most probably challenging three or four days of my, of my life to continue to rally the troops, to continue to bring the fight to the enemy. When they see that the plan changes for no sort of explainable reason, and then soldiers get killed, that's a hard pill. He still thinks about the ramp ceremony that was held to honor the five men who had died during those two days. At the end of the ramp ceremony, the, the soldiers' very closest friends are allowed to come on in the back of the Hercules and, and you know, sort of pay their last sort of few minutes of respects to their buddies who were in these flag-draped coffins of, before they send back Canada. And again, there's this moment when probably about 15, 16 soldiers in the back of that hurt, and they're looking at you as a commanding officer and, and expecting you to say something. It's like, guys, it's like, if you're looking for the guy who's responsible for why your soldier, or your buddy rather, is in that flag-draped coffin, it's me. You're looking at him. I'm the commanding officer. I am responsible and accountable for everything that goes on in this battle group. And those soldiers were killed following my orders, one way or the other. He told them that he could stop all that tomorrow, that they could adopt a defensive posture, which would likely mean no more of their comrades would die. They all said, it's like, the fact that my buddy was killed, it's like, it, it strengthened their resolve to continue to bring the fight to the enemy because they said, if we don't, then he's died in vain. Over the next two weeks, the Canadians continued the operation. Initially, Lavoie was ordered to attack the same target again. I'm not much of a, a poker player, but, you know, you only try the same bluff once or twice. He was able to convince his superiors 
that this wasn't the right strategy. Instead, they changed their axis of attack to the north and made a slow, deliberate push towards the south. No more Canadian lives were lost, though several were wounded. By September 17th, Operation Medusa was declared a victory. Operation Medusa was heralded as an unprecedented success, a stroke of military genius that may have vanquished the Taliban once and for all. Stephen Harper said that the Taliban were on the run. The governor of Kandahar went so far as to say, quote, the enemy has been completely eliminated. But the real story of what had happened, the rushed attack, the bad intelligence, wouldn't come out until much later, thanks to the reporting of Adam Day in Legion magazine. After the fighting was done, Sean Teal was given the Star of Military Valor, the second highest award in the Canadian forces. But today, he honestly doesn't think much of it. I, I don't actually even look at my medal much. I, I just start thinking about, about, about planning and about could things have been better. And of course, hindsight, everything's always better. You're always, you're always going to be able to say you could have done something better. But it really felt, you know... You, f- you almost feel like you were helpless to a plan that was never never going to work. And, and for me, when I look at that medal, every time I see it, I just, keep, I just keep thinking about Rick being dead and wondering whether or not he wouldn't be dead if it was two days later. And he's been frustrated by how the media covered Operation Medusa, only as a kind of glorious victory. But with the press, I never understood with how many cameras and people were in the country that they couldn't have just, people couldn't have just been honest. Whenever you see people talking about the military, they always look super happy. They're always saying, I love this and I love what I'm doing. And I'm like, if you had them off camera and you ask them the same question, you get a different answer. And he's angry about the orders he had to follow that first day. Just imagine being on a, on a, on a range and having one target and you're standing right behind it. And you've got hundreds of people all aiming for the same one. You tell me how you'd feel about that plan afterwards. There's, there's not a single person I could think of that would have been okay with how they felt when they, when they left. Reporter Adam Day asked General David Frazier why he had issued those orders. Frazier told him that he made the decisions based on the intelligence he was getting and his feel for how the battle was playing out. And while he admitted he was experiencing, quote, pressure from all sides to push things along, he denied it significantly influenced his decision. We did reach out to David Fraser for an interview, but we never heard back. So what did Operation Medusa actually accomplish in the end? For one, Canadian forces certainly did kill a lot of Taliban fighters, almost 200. But was it worth it? That depends on who you ask. Despite his discomfort with the orders he was given, Omar Lavoie thinks that it was. It was a necessary part of, of the campaign to win Afghanistan, and I don't believe any of those soldiers died in vain executing Operation Medusa. When I talk to my soldiers, I, I tell them, you know, continue to be proud of what we did, and I'm still proud of what we did. You guys accomplished or achieved exactly what we were assigned to do. The reporter Adnan Khan believes that it was a tactical victory, but a strategic failure. 
they undermined the whole concept of the PRT, which is hearts and minds, which is you know winning, winning over the local population, right? When you go in with such a heavy hammer blow, there, there are costs to that. This wasn't some unpopulated battlefield where all the fighting was taking place. There were towns, villages, people's homes. Over 30 civilians were killed during Medusa, including 20 from a single extended family. The three days of aerial bombardment that the soldiers were promised would have likely saved Canadian lives, but it almost certainly would have come at the cost of innocent Afghan lives. Even though the Canadians had leafleted the area telling people to leave, not everyone would have. Bruce Monker told us one disturbing story. He says he witnessed this firsthand. After we lost the battle, we retreated back to the position. There were two snipers, and they were there, and somebody had called in that there was a woman hanging laundry. No one was to be in that area, or you'd be seen as an enemy combatant. And they found her with their scope, and they watched as she was killed. So this woman, hanging laundry, not fighting, not doing anything, out in the open, like, Some people were high-fiving. One person yelled, pink mists. And I remember feeling sick to my stomach. I remember thinking, this is not what I came here for. That's not what I I wanted, was this innocent woman getting freaking murdered by a sniper bullet, and some guy could put a notch in his belt. I just felt that that wasn't what this mission was about. Even while the Canadian government and military brass were celebrating Operation Medusa, things got even deadlier for Canadian soldiers. Just one day after they had declared victory, a suicide bomber killed four Canadians. And the months after brought a litany of attacks against NATO forces. A part of me also thinks back on those times and thinks, how much was the Taliban really looking to win this? For them, time was on their side. They could just back away at a certain point and say, okay, enough and let's start chipping away at these guys. Some Taliban did tell me that at the time as well, that we're just gonna go home for a while and then we'll be back, don't worry, you know? And of course they were back. NATO had defeated the Taliban on the battlefield, but that wouldn't win them the war. Okay, that was Medusa, the most recent episode of Commons. This episode was produced by Archie Mann and Jordan Cornish. Additional support was provided by Noor Azria and Tristan Capicione. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. You can email me about this episode or anything we publish. I am at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Our theme music is by So Called. Commons music is by Nathan Burley. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.
Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Hello, Mel Woods, Associate Culture Editor at Extra Magazine. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Mel, where we talk about the news. Thanks so much for having me. Mel, we're going to duly note some stuff. What do you got? So some sad news in the kind of Canadian queer journalism space this week. Gerald Handon passed away on Monday, and Gerald Handon has a very deep connection to my publication, Extra. Uh, He was one of the founding members of The Body Politic, which was kind of our predecessor, the first queer publication in Canada. He remained on as a board member for a really long time. He's probably best known for going and becoming a professor at uh, now named Toronto Metropolitan University. And in 1995, a Toronto Sun reporter reported on the front page of the Toronto Sun that he also worked as a sex worker, something that Gerald was very kind of proud of and spoke openly about a lot uh, as this attempt to kind of name and shame him. And Gerald kind of bounce back even stronger from all of that. He's been a veteran of the scene for such a long time and his writing has been so influential to so many people. I mean, speaking kind of personally as a young journalist, as a young queer journalist, as a young trans journalist, it's it's because of people like him that I'm able to do the work I do in the way that I do it with the openness that I'm able to do it. And it's kind of just an honor to kind of been able to be around at the same time. He passed away after a long illness on Monday. What I'm duly noting is uh, kind of the tributes that have been rolling in. He was beloved across so many different corners of the Canadian journalism community. We ran a, I think it ended up being like 7,000 word uh, tribute in Extra on Monday. And I really encourage folks to go read it because it's really just kind of first person notes from his friends, from his family, from the people who uh, loved him, who knew him, who learned from him and everything like that. And, And reading through that really Uh, It just put a lot of things into perspective for me about uh, why we do the work we do, why the queer press does the work that we do, uh, and the importance of figures like Gerald, and 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 why uh, he'll be he'll be greatly missed. And the and the foreword to that piece is written by Ed Jackson, who was another uh, early body politicker um, and Pink Triangle Press member. You know, uh, Gerald's I've been working on a memoir for quite a long time that's actually set to come out later this summer called Immoral, Indecent, and Scurrilous, The Making of an Unrepentant Sex Radical, which is quite a title if you ask me. And that'll be uh, dropping later this summer and I think is going to be a, a great kind of last gift from Gerald to to the world. Because yeah, he's, he was a really important figure, a towering figure in queer journalism in Canada, in journalism in general, and a lot of people uh, are missing him this week. I'm going to read those tributes and extra and and the book because, you know, I learned about this mostly through the obituary in the Globe and Mail. I was kind of vaguely aware of Gerald Hannon, but it was when I read the obituary, which is quite a fine piece of writing, but also just what a life. And I just was struck by what a huge oversight that I never had a chance or, or knew enough to reach out for an interview if that might have been possible in the early days of Canada Land because Gerald's life is quite a story from Canadian journalism and the fight that you reference with what was then called Ryerson University about uh, the revelation of his work as a sex worker and the persecution he faced but then the ultimate vindication like it's it's 
I'm rarely cheering at the end of an obituary, but it made me just fascinated with this person. And um, it's sad when it's somebody's death that makes you want to engage with their work, but I'm going to engage with it. Duly noted. So, Mel, speaking of media executives stepping out of their offices and writing articles for the first time, may I read to you from the writings of one Paul Godfrey? Oh, please, please enlighten me. This is from an article that ran on May 7th as an opinion column in the National Post, Paul Godfrey, special to the National Post. The headline is Opinion, My Advocacy, Media, Politics, Religion, and Patrick Brown. And here's what uh, Paul Godfrey wrote. I have never written or used post media as a platform to express my personal views. To be clear, we at Post Media have a fantastic group of journalists who can express opinions far better than I can. But this time, I couldn't resist. For this is one instance where the story at hand intersects with media, politics, my religion, and my advocacy for Mr. Brown. Wow. What is it? Like, this guy, he's a thousand years old. He has been a media executive for one thousand years. <laughs> yes, he was an infant media executive. And he's never written an article before. He's left it to the journalist. But he's breaking that now. What has happened that inspired him to do this? Well, it was his own newspaper's mistake, he writes. His own newspaper, the National Post, has made what he feels is like a journalistic error, and he has to clear it up. He says that the Post's article about Patrick Brown lacked what he would argue is important context. Mel, this is what happened here. On May 2nd, the National Post ran an article by Catherine Levesque. The headline was, Patrick Brown under fire for comments about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Okay, so Patrick Brown's running to be the leader of the Conservative Party, and he was speaking to a Muslim group. And first of all, he sort of breaks with other conservatives in his position that Canada should not relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is sort of a hot button topic. And he also said, like, look, if we can move super quick for the benefit of Ukrainian refugees, then we can move just as fast to support and help Afghani or refugees from Yemen. And he was then asked, what about Palestinians? And he answered, yes, yes, we also should be able to move fast to help Palestinians. And he said that he was deeply troubled by the violence occurring in Jerusalem. So he is certainly more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause than most conservative candidates. And this was reported by the National Post. And Paul Godfrey is incredibly upset about the very idea that Palestinian refugees might deserve the same consideration as Ukrainian refugees. And he writes that his Jewish community is equally upset. This is egregious. And he wants to set the record straight because Patrick Brown was taken out of context. Nobody should think that Patrick Brown wants to help Palestinian refugees, I guess, is why he felt the need to write this piece. It's wild. It is wild. It is a wild, like, I've read this piece a few times now, and every line I just go, wow, this is kind of the 
all the justification for the the hand of God to come down into the editorial pages and say this this is the the hill it is time to die on. It's just a wild kind of situation altogether, and also just like a giant like disrespect to his own staff and workers who are doing their jobs to say like oh no 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 the people I you know, pay money, not enough money to do this, did it very wrong. And in fact, I am correct. And I must protect my friend. It's like such a showing of the hand of the influence of media executives in Canada. He just like put it all out on the table, everything that we kind of implicitly know, and just like said it. It's 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 wild to me. You got that absolutely right. Like the first thing is just like to his own reporter, for him to undermine her journalism you know, the media has missed the mark. It's not a small thing to say for anybody to say this reporter took this out of context and, and the piece got it wrong. For the chair of Post Media, for the boss's boss's boss, for Paul Godfrey, the executive, for the chair of Post Media to like do this unprecedented thing is a very serious statement undermining that journalist, right? I wonder if the union's going to get involved. I wonder what Catherine Levesque's colleagues think about this, not just because it's sort of improper for him to do this under kind of any circumstances, but he's wrong. He's wrong. She didn't take anything out of context. No, exactly. It's him trying to run damage control PR to specific audiences to change how these comments are being taken, but it doesn't take back the fact the comments were made. That's all accurately reported. That is what he said. Yeah. He absolutely drew that comparison. He absolutely said that thing in context was correct. I mean, like there was some paraphrasing and summary involved, but nothing, no meanings were changed here. So he's just sort of wrong on a factual basis. I take offense that he sort of purports to be representing the Jewish community with this, that, that like the idea that this should offend me, that Patrick Brown would say that Palestinian rights are, are important or Palestinian refugees deserve to have uh, a certain kind of treatment from Canada. Like that, like that, that would be like a, an offensive, egregious statement. Just like speak for yourself, buddy. That's got nothing to do with me. I'll keep counting the ways. As he's wrapping his reporter on the knuckles for some sort of journalistic error, he makes a big journalistic error. He said, in full disclosure, one of my sons has a prominent role in Mr. Brown's campaign. Oh, thank you for that full disclosure. That's all you have to disclose. You know, it's, it's clear that you're an advocate for Patrick Brown and your son has a job with Patrick Brown. I guess that's all you have to disclose. Well, if anybody read Patrick Brown's book, and not many people did, but if anybody read that book, published by Optimum Press, by the way, you would know that Paul Godfrey himself was part of Patrick Brown's previous campaign to be premier of Ontario. And he was in the room strategizing when that campaign fell apart amidst allegations of sexual misconduct by Patrick Brown. His full disclosure is that he himself has a prominent role in Patrick Brown's campaigning. Okay. So he is, he is partially disclosing. He's not fully disclosing his role in this, which is a much bigger error, even than the one he's accusing Catherine Levesque of, which she did not do. I don't know. Like, I get worked up about this kind of stuff. Nobody paid any attention to this article. Like it was very specifically intended for a very specific audience. It offends me on so many levels because, you know, Patrick Brown wants to keep the support of the right side of Jewish politics in Canada. But if he were to step forward and correct the record himself, if Patrick Brown were to say, oh, no, I didn't mean to stand up for Palestinians, 
they're nothing like Ukrainians. They, they, they don't deserve anything that Ukrainians deserve. Then he would be gaining uh, hawkish Zionist support at the expense of the Muslim support that he's courting. So he can't do it. So he calls in Paul Godfrey to do it, who hijacks the pages of the National Post to undermine his own reporter for this very specific partisan purpose. It's fucking gross. It's wild. And, and like I said, it's... You know, I think we talk lots about how the high up ownership of the quote unquote mainstream Canadian press has, you know, hands in, you know, many pots and pools, especially related to uh, the Conservative Party and Conservative politicians. Uh, But it is just like so wild to see it so blatantly just laid out and kind of owned up to of like it's just he like says word for word, like I am interested in protecting Patrick Brown and therefore I am going to undermine my own journalists to do so. And he just says it. So rarely these people actually just say that. Uh, and it, it kind of blows my mind. Kind of a weird grab bag of topics today, Mel, but there is like one common strain throughout everything except for the Gerald Hannon remembrance. And, and that common thread is just like an absolute disdain for the intelligence of the Canadian public. <laughs> that's That's the theme. Yeah, it's grim. It's grim out there. We got to the place where we try to get to. That shortcuts for this week. Mel Woods, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Okay, we're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at CanadaLand.com. Our website is CanadaLand.com, where you can listen to the first episode of Detour. Please, somebody help me, uh, which uh, is going to be available this weekend, our first ongoing French language show. Mel Woods, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter.com, at Into the Mel Woods. Uh, expect lots of pictures of my awful little cats, uh, and also queer reporting and stuff. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard, with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by so-called syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, if you like what we do and you want to receive premium ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Now is the time. Our sale is on. It will not be on for much longer. Hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. 